Hello and welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. I'm delighted to welcome our guests today. They are Dr. Adam Reid, Chief Sustainability and External Affairs Officer at Suez UK, a leading global provider of environmental solutions. And joining us from Germany, Philip Eder, Sustainability Strategist, Procurement Strategy at Audi AG. Now, in this episode, we'll be exploring the circular economy from two very different organizations. But also we'll be hearing today from our two guests, personal, professional and societal perspectives from two people who are committed to making the world a better place. To find out, let's get into the conversation. Adam, Philip, welcome to The Lens. So if I could find out a little bit about both of you, first of all, Adam, I will start with you. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how your career has developed to bring you to the role of Chief Sustainability and External Affairs Officer at Suez. And I know we're going to be talking a lot on this episode about green jobs, but from your bio, you've had a green job for 30 years. Hi, Sarah. Yes, I've been lucky. I guess I was a A big environmentalist as a child. I grew up in suburban London, the Royal Park. So I had a lot of access to countryside, but living in an urban environment. And I think, you know, studying geography at school, it it became a passion. My teachers really supported me. And then it was a degree in geography and everything else just stems from that. Understanding human impact on the environment and then the environmental response to that human impact became something that I did at degree level. I studied climate change. I studied glaciology. I, I got into countryside planning. And and interestingly, my father, my old man, if you like, was working in and around the waste industry as I was going through education. And so I got to spend a few summers, you know, a, a, around sites and, and watching the sector evolve. And I just kind of thought my academic background and 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 sort of it fits. And so once you enter the waste industry, what they tell you is you never leave. And, uh, you know, 25, 26 years later, I've progressed through consultancy, local government, used to be a recycling officer trying to get the public to, to put stuff in the right bin. Well, we're still doing that 25 years later, aren't we? Um, the consultancy, I spent a lot of time working with municipalities, local authorities, but also with businesses. How do we just do things better? I got into things like life cycle analysis, got to work on some of the early carbon reporting agendas, and that kind of broadened my my, my breadth of interest beyond purely waste and recycling, if you like. And, and, and then the, you know, I got a knock on the door one day from Suez saying, we, we want to become a partner of government. We want to take and support the, the policy reforms in the UK. And we need an external affairs director, as, as the title was then, to, to help us, I guess, help them answer some really difficult questions about policy reform. And so I went from being somebody that used to do lots of small projects to help businesses into somebody that was now sitting alongside government going, and how do we reform policy for the next 25 years? And I've got to say, I absolutely love what I do. Sustainability was bolted on a little bit later to my remit because I had those technical skills from my upbringing. And what did your old man, your dad, think of, of where you've, you've ended up? Oh, he's, he's, he absolutely loves the fact that I'm I'm still in the sector that he called home for, for 25 years. I was honoured to be made the 105th president of the CIWM, Chartered Institution of Waste Management, which is a huge accolade for people working in waste and resources. And I guess there was a tear in his eye that day when he went, OK, it wasn't a bad career choice after all, Adam, was it? That's brilliant. It was in the blood, definitely. Yeah. Um, and for those who don't know what Suez is, 
Can you tell us a little bit about the size of the organization and what you actually, what the organization does? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Suez in the UK. We're 6,000 staff, 350 sites. We do everything from waste collection from your household, from your bins at home through to recycling. Uh, we do a lot of reuse and repair now, working on uh, taking materials up the waste hierarchy and putting them to better use. But we've also got energy from waste plants where we're generating electricity or anaerobic digestion where we're generating uh, heat, heat and electricity from organic waste and we produce compost to put back to land. So we've, uh, we've got most types of solution. Uh, we handle literally millions of tonnes of people's discarded products and, and resources. And I guess we're trying to put those resources back to better use wherever we can. Well, it's extremely topical and there's plenty in what you've just told me to delve into. But I'd like to bring in our other guest today, Philip Eder. You join us, as we say, from Germany. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up working with Audi. Yes, I'm not having so much experience like Adam, So, but nevertheless, I started my professional career quite early. So when I was 16, doing a combination of apprenticeship and high school degree at Audi. So that's the reason why I'm already 14 years part of the Audi family, so nearly half of my life. That sounds quite long for me. And uh, after this kind of apprenticeship, I did my bachelor and master degree with a focus on circular economy and probably... As a lot of people in my age, I was looking for a job with purpose, something where I can really make a positive impact. I found this job in the procurement department at Audi, and specific in the procurement strategy department, which was all about circular economy. And since 2019, I'm responsible for the circular economy strategy. It's also about the real implementation, the physical projects behind it. Like, for example, I'm the project manager of our material project, and this makes my job really a fun job, and I really love it. Material Loop, yes, that is a project that I was was doing a little bit of research on. It is fascinating. And again, hold that thought because I want to come back to it. Before we delve into the circular economy, which is the theme and the topic of today's Lens podcast, I have to just ask you, Adam, what is the fascination with the Wombles? Well, I'd like to think that everybody listening in knows who the Wombles are. Philip, do you know who the Wombles are? He's holding his hands up. He's shaking his head, Adam. Please tell those young people and people not from the UK, I suppose. Well, well, I guess the Wombles maybe don't translate that well into German. But let me, let me give you a, a little potted history. There, um, there are a bunch of furry creatures that live on Wimbledon Common. And the reason I'm interested is because I grew up on the, on, the ed- on the edges of Wimbledon Common as a child. Um, and they used to basically pick up litter, clearing up after human society and, and making good use of the stuff. So they build their burrow out of with the leftovers of, of society. And I guess Elizabeth Beresford was the author and she, and she wrote the books in sort of the mid-60s early 70s and, and and I grew up you know reading them in the in the early to mid 70s and just was a bit fascinated by litter pickers because it wasn't something that I was necessarily you know aspiring to but it was just it kind of just piqued my interest and I guess it stuck with me I did a summer job at Chesington World of Adventures I could have dressed up as a Disney character I could have been on the rides but no I chose litter picking and my career was set as a as a 16 year old but I, I did my PhD on um, the failure of solid waste management policy in the UK, which was kind of a, an interesting topic to pick. But I, I chose the Wombles to be my theme. And so every chapter of my PhD has a quote from Elizabeth Beresford and the Wombles at the opening of every chapter. And, and that was my thank you to her. And I wrote to her and, and said, did you mind? And she was very happy that I was doing so. Genius. That is ing- I would have just given you a first <laughs> because of that idea. Let's delve into our topic for today, the circular 
economy. Now, again, it's become one of those buzzwords for this time. I'm a journalist. I'm not an environmentalist. So I wonder if you could tell me in the simplest terms, what's your take on the circular economy? Philip, if we could start with you and Audi. Circular economy, what is it? To make it as simple as possible. So the, the resources of our earth are limited and therefore we shouldn't use more resources than the earth and its ecosystems are regenerating year by year. I think that's the simplest explanation, at least for myself. And this is one of many reasons why circular economy and in specific the topics reduce, reuse and recycling is a key part of the Audi strategy. So when it comes to the usage of circular materials, We have a very clear position. It's also part of our code of conduct for business partners, part of every contract with our suppliers. And it's mentioning that we want to use secondary materials wherever it is friendly for the environment, technically possible, and last but not least, also economically reasonable to do so. And we believe that especially the return of post-consumer and post-consumer automotive materials, that means materials which are already have been already been in the hands of our customers, They should come back to our supply chain. And that's also the reason why we are doing that in the procurement department. Yeah, and this is also the reason why we've started from 2019 onwards several projects to return materials to our supply chain, like glass, like plastics, and for example, steel. So one example is the Glass Loop project. It's a project very new. And within the process, we are recycling unrepairable broken windshields from our dealer network. I think some something everybody have experienced in his life. Yes. And uh, we have created an all new process where we are recycling this kind of broken windshields and bringing it back into our supply chain. So in the past, this kind of windshields were downcycled to bottles or, for example, insulation for houses. And we are working on exactly this kind of process where we don't need to downcycle the material, but keeping on on the same level and bringing it back to our supply chain. And as a good fact, I mean, this is already or this will be series production this year for our Q4 e-tron. So we always try to bring it into production and into series production. It's it's absolutely ingenious. And you said you've been um, in charge of this area since 2019. You applied certain criteria to, to whether you can make this possible. One of them you mentioned there was it had to be economically viable. Is this a huge challenge to be recycling, reusing car parts in new models? It depends, to be very honest. And uh, to also Put it or stated in a positive way, one good example is the glass loop project. And as you remember, the last years were quite quite rough years for the supply chain. So we had a, a crisis, a, a COVID crisis, then we had the war, and the whole supply chain was struggling. And what we realized within that time that if we bring back secondary materials, which we are having our own hand on them, um, then we can stabilize our supply chain also from the economical perspective. So this is probably a very positive feedback out of this project that it doesn't need to be more or higher in price. It can be even less in price if we really have the full loop closed. So it's hard work, but it doesn't need to be more expensive in this case. And what response are you getting, first of all, from your suppliers and partners and second of all, from customers? Yeah, to be very honest, when it comes to the glass loop project, we, we direct or we were talking to all our glass suppliers in the beginning And all of them were nearly refusing because bringing post-consumer material into the production means a lot of changes for them. And there are also quality risks. So if there's only one stone chip in a big truck full of glass curlets, it destroys the full day production of the company and of our suppliers. So even that is not sustainable for sure. 
And that's why everybody's a bit afraid of doing something like that. So it's a lot about convincing, about trying, about piloting. When you've reached the stage that everybody's convinced and the process is working yeah, steady, then that's the, the point where you have done it. And, and this is quite a long path. So in case of the Glass project, it took yeah, nearly three years to have this process stabilized. And I suppose then when you start winning awards and you read in the, in the newspapers about the success of this, you get more buy-in. So Adam, um, let's bring you now and your take on the circular economy, which I think you've kind of explained even in, in your life cycle, you've been living and breathing the circular economy before we even had a name for it. Tell us what you say to people it actually is. Philip addressed it really well. I one planet living is what we talk about and the resources of, of one planet. I mean, they may not be fairly distributed, but the point is once they're gone, they're gone. And at the moment, we're, we're stripping three planets worth on, on average every year. So when you talk about the circular economy, you, you think about things going around in loops and you think about this kind of flow of material and recycling would be one of the outer loops. The inner loop, exactly what Philip's talked about, is it's this concept that something is designed to be used many times or repaired or refilled perhaps on a, from a packaging perspective um, and so you change the ownership model and, and I think a, a lot of the problem with circular economy is you're asking people to embrace leasing um, rather than ownership and I, and I think that post-war boom where government policy was all about ownership and that was how we were going to grow the economy actually we're now saying to people you don't really need to own your car because that's a really good example how many people actually own their cars people don't own their houses in a traditional sense of owning and can you apply that to the phone the laptop uh, and then you go well what else could i could i you know i i, I want the drink but I, I i don't need to own the glass bottle or jar do i and so you start to realize that maybe we've built an economic model that actually was fit for a purpose but isn't fit for the purpose of today and so for me circularity is simply about better design designing things so they they're easier to dismantle or easier to repair or easier to to replace a component um they're easier to capture or if you use the, the, the phrasing of, of Suez we like to harvest so because there's value so how do I get that right material in the right hand so I can then get a supply chain to work on whether it's glass or plastic or aluminium or whatever it might be and, and ultimately the more that we can see repair refurb uh, remanufacture coming to the fore you're going to look at models like the Audi one or you're going to look at Xerox who have been very good at it or you look at some of the laptop manufacturers who are now you know it's, it's, it's their standard model as it is with smartphones you go that's great because they're expensive items how do we now apply the circularity model to things that maybe aren't as expensive but still the resources are just as expensive and that's I think the next phase of our transition is, is making everybody go well this is new business this makes sense. Mm, gosh, you have really got me thinking. This is where you need people to be, isn't it? To, to really thinking of the longevity or what happens uh, next. And particularly, Adam, in relation to the work that you do in Suez, how does the circular economy work out in practice with you and your organisation? What my sustainability champions and my green procurement team are working on, we work with our supply chains to look at resource efficiency, using concentrates in, in detergents, for example, looking at refillable bottles. We've taken out single-use plastics from all of our sites to make sure that you've got proper cutlery stuff that could be used hundreds of times and could be washed this is not new and it's not difficult but sometimes we just get into the habit of just we we'll buy a bottle of water and then throw it in the bin afterwards and you've just got to make other options a bit more accessible so my teams are busy making things more accessible and it, sometimes it's very small steps but those small steps build people's awareness of oh that's actually quite easy things like sustainable transport policies covid enabled us 
to start to work online in a way that perhaps an operational business like ours found hard. And now we go, well, we, you know, we've got a travel policy that if you want to have a meeting, you've got to define why you want people to go to it physically. There has to be an upside. Otherwise, we're going to do it online. And if you're going to go, well, what are the transport options? Because can we car share? And so now there's a lot more car sharing. And these are all small steps that build awareness and build momentum for other larger steps that, that will come down the line. Well, look at us all even doing this podcast today. Ten years ago, we'd have had to fly you into a studio and all of those things. But no, um, we've learned an awful lot. So, Philip, if I could come back to you and car manufacturing, it's huge. And you had a big task on your hands to become greener, to become more sustainable. Are there different standards out there for car manufacturers? What, what does Audi do to lead the way? Our responsibility is quite huge. And it starts from the first sketch of a vehicle, very similar as Adam said, designed for circularity is a big topic right here. And it ends with the scrapping and the recycling of the remaining car bodies. So it's the full life cycle we are taking into account. And I think the material project is a very good example where we are showing our ambition in this case of life cycle of the full life cycle of our vehicles. So within the project, we have tried to close the loop for up to 100 Audis, and we try to close it by recycling the materials, but also by reusing the parts. And if I can, I explain it a little bit. Just please do, please do. <laughs> First, we are dismantling the vehicles in a very Audi-specific way. That means we are dismantling parts which are yeah, easy to recycle in the beginning. Then we are dismantling parts which are making problems in the recycling process afterwards, after the shredding. And very important, we are also dismantling parts which are resellable, for example, for the after-sale market, always in this hierarchy of circular economy, reduce, reuse, and recycling. And then the remaining car bodies go to our strategic partner. They will be shredded, they will be sorted. It's called the post trade technology. Probably Adam knows it very well. And then the materials like steel, aluminum, glass, polymers, they are going back to our supply chain. And this was especially the task here because it's not that easy to bring these materials, even steel, what we thought would be quite easy, again to an automotive supply chain because we have quite high quality requirements or safety requirements. And as you can imagine, such a process is not something we can do alone. So we try to team up. We have found 15 different partner companies, for example, from our supply chain, but also from the recycling industry or from university to find a solution for this kind of loop and the full life cycle. And I think the project shows very well how important it is to work together in circular economy, especially in a holistic way. And yeah, and also to be very transparent, this is just one step. It's part of a bigger picture. And we have just started on our circular economy journey at Audi. Can every single part of the car be reused, recycled? We have uh, legislation also in Europe. It's called end-of-life vehicle directive, where we are binded to specific recycling quo uh, ratios. But in this project, we wanted to make it different. I mean, not just recycling, but recycling in an Audi way. It was not that easy. So roughly 60% of an old vehicle can be used again for the production of a new vehicle. It's higher than we thought, but I mean, even for steel, we just reached just reached 90%. If you th thought it could be t 100 in this case, we are at the beginning finding out what is possible and what is not and where we need to improve. Um, but I think we're on a good way here. And I'm wondering, has the customer bought into that? I want to drive that because guess what? It's made up of these parts that have been recycled. 
But it is all about the marketing and the communication, Adam. It's it's what you do very, very well. It's why you're in the role you are, because you can communicate the message as well. And you get people to buy into those messages. Recently, for example, I just bought a swimsuit that was made up of recycled uh, plastics that had been reclaimed from, from the sea. And I thought... I want to buy that because that's a good use of, of my money. But I'm, I'm just thinking a lot of businesses maybe struggle with that, struggle with the messaging. And as you said as well, it's very costly to buy these things too. You have to pay slightly more. That's the downside at the moment that in some cases, and not all, Philip's got examples where it maybe isn't costing more, but often the effort to get that material back is costing more in real terms than the effort to get the raw material in the first place. And that's partly because... There aren't the same taxes on virgin materials um, as there are on on reclaimed materials, and that's because of the labour costs and the and the movement and transport required to to do the second and third lives. So you know, uh, looking at a PET bottle, for example, or an aluminium can, is you know nobody really talks about what's the downstream impact of that when you manufacture it. There is no cost incurred on that, and I think that's going to be one of the biggest barriers to bringing consumers across to to a more circular world is if if they see the true costs of what happens when they discard something, they may choose to buy it in a different way. They may choose to, to lease it because then they're not responsible for its on um, costs, if you like, both environmental and, and social. And I think that's one of the biggest opportunities in terms of the narrative around moving to a circular is you're, you're not only not responsible, but you're only paying for the things that you want or need as opposed to you know, suddenly being sunk with a huge cost for the, the next 20 years of a material's life because that's how long it takes for it to degrade or, or disappear or be re, you know, remanufactured perhaps. So I think there is a narrative coming. There is, there is a need to be a bit more, A, creative in the way that we talk about ownership uh, and, and, and lifestyle and, and the positivity of having a recycled content swimsuit, for example. I think that's great. It's a great thing to talk about when you're on the beach. I think it, it says something about you, and I think that's important. Uh, I think on the car front, I mean, would I buy a car that's got high recycled content? Actually, I'm not that bothered. What I'm interested in, is it low resource use? Is it low carbon? Is it more environmental? I don't need to know. And that's interesting. That's why I'm a pragmatic environmentalist. Isn't it? I don't need to know every detail. I just need to know that it's a good car with the right you know credentials and and is still comparable in performance for the things that are important to, to my decision and I, and I think you know when you look at the space that we now operate in you know we provide a lot of the materials that you know philip and others will be looking at you know we're, we're part of that supply chain that loop getting the materials in the right place at the right time but if we're going to get consumers to start to buy or use differently, then you start to create an entirely new set of supply chains. And I think that's really exciting. But actually, you've got to be able to explain that because it's, it's kind of the milkman model, which, you know, for people of my generation really resonates well. You know, you put your milk out, you get your milk in, you use your milk, you put your bottle out, and, you know, it, there's, the, there's the cyclical system. But, of course, that didn't work with the modern family and everybody leaving the house really early. And that's the, the challenge we face is it suddenly became easier to buy it when you wanted it on the go. But nobody was really going, but actually the cost of then disposing of all of that material, that wasn't being picked up by the individual. You never saw it. And so now we're playing catch-up. How do we get my mum to understand that her decisions have a legacy that she's not paying for at the moment. That's the critical transition, I think, with the c consumption and consumers. Because if we don't get that right, everybody thinks we can recycle our way out of it. And, and the answer is almost, because you can recycle most things if you spend enough time and money, but we're still going to run out of resources ultimately because you can't recycle 100% efficiently. 
there's always leakage. There's always a, a degrading of material just because the fibers will change or there's only so many times that you can mix them or blend them. So ultimately, the recycling has to be the end of the circular economy, not the beginning. And that's a journey that, you know, from a, from a narrative point of view, can be quite tough when you've got the public, both Germany and England, have spent the last 30 years being told recycling is great. Um, those messages are maybe just starting to land and, and now we're changing them. Um, okay. And Adam, just staying with you for this, because I know you now sit on the government's green job delivery group. You're very involved in shaping policy and working alongside government. I have to ask you, is the government as committed as it was to reaching those net zero goals? In, in short, no, they're not. And I think you've only got to go back five years with the launch of the new resources and waste strategy, Michael Gove, huge fanfare, unbelievable vision, so much effort and energy put into that space. And I, and I think all sat within the, the, the decarbonisation agenda. So it fitted perfectly. Resources and waste as a means of delivering net zero seemed to be the perfect match. And I think we've had changing ministerial leadership. I think you've had COVID and, and then the Ukraine. And I think, unfortunately, the environment has just dropped down the political agenda and at the same time as we've done the analysis and we've worked through all of the how does the supply chain work and how do we get the incentives to ensure that packaging goes around quicker and better quality the the questions that we've had to answer on these working groups has probably identified just how complex the the supply chain is and how difficult getting the right interventions are and be guaranteed that they work and so what's happened is other priorities have overtaken the environment space and the complexities of the environment space have gone, ah, that might cost us a bit more. We might get it wrong. That's probably not a vote winner. And so I think you've seen it drop. And that's why we've had significant delays in the UK on policy reforms that, that five years ago we would have been leading the world on. Bringing all of your knowledge um, to the listeners now who maybe are working in, in, in very different sectors or running their own businesses, I want to give them a little bit of advice and you've both got real expertise in your areas, but what would you each of you say are the three things any business can do or should consider when they're thinking about the circular economy? And Philip, if I could stay with you for that one. So three things is not that easy because there are probably a million things. Yeah. And uh, I think first of all, it's important to understand that circular economy is not only a challenge for companies like us, but also a opportunity. And a second point would be that, um, similar as Adam said before, take circular economy seriously and, and consider a holistic approach. That means it's not only about recycling, but it's always about all perspectives of circular economy. It's about reduce, reduce, reuse, and recycling. And recycling is just the very last option. So if you're going into the topic of circular economy, please consider everything. Yeah, and uh, last but not least, I think... Yeah, right now we have struggled so much by, for example, the supply chain, by different crises. And many industries, and I think especially the automotive industry, are right now in a huge transition phase when it comes, for example, to say sustainability in general, decarbonization, or circular economy in specific. And if you take a closer look on all those topics, they have one thing in common, they cannot be solved alone. So I highly recommend everybody out there Look for motivated partners who can join you to create a positive impact because alone you cannot close any loop. And I think that's really an important thing, which we also learn in our projects, to be very honest. 
Yeah, collaboration with motivated partners. Brilliant. Um, third piece of advice there. Adam, same question to you. I don't know if you've anything different there, but what would your three things be for businesses? I'm going to build on Philip's because I think I agree with his three. So, um, but I'm going to use my my kind of consultancy upbringing, if you like, to to, to bring perspective. Number one, do an audit. Audit of your resources. You know, what is it you buy? What is it you use? What is it you discard? Because you'll quickly work out, oh, we're buying a lot of that, but a load of it's ending up as rubbish. Hang about. We could do something different there. So that's that's your opportunity, if you like. Number two, talk to your supply chain because some of them are innovating for other customers already. So you might be able to get the benefit of something they did last year for somebody else and go, ah, oh, so we could buy it differently or we could refill or we could repurpose or whatever the answer might be. A different provision model, if you like. And then um, number three, and I guess it's two parts. One is to set targets, targets of improvement around these key priorities, because you can't do everything. So set set some targets to get momentum, um, but also get local ownership. So it's a bit like the collaborative piece that Philip talked about. I, I've got champions who drive initiatives locally because it's important to them. And, I, and it's replicating that across multiple sites gives you a, a huge boost to the momentum that you can build. Great advice there. In fact, Business in the Community's 2022 report, The Right Climate for Business Leading to a Just Transition, it actually discovered that only 24% of customers are aware of what businesses are doing on climate action. And of them, 62% don't trust businesses to do what they promise. What can businesses do to, you know, send out the right climate positive messages I think if you knee jerk, people will naturally miss it and then think, what, what are you talking about? So we've been very consistent. We've been talking about it for like, it's three years now that we've been very clear. Climate change, circularity, resource efficiency, they're all part of the same, same journey. And so we use uh, language like, you know, resource consumption. We talk about um, resource efficiency and we're very clear that it's a journey that we've not solved but we're on and we want to go on the journey with our customers and our suppliers and we'll work on it together. And I think, you know, that's the message. It's a positive, it's an opportunity, it's green jobs. Yes. It's all of those things, but ultimately it's a journey we have to go on because there is no plan B. Um, you know, we've got to get to 2050 and, and, and we set our agenda in, in, in light of that, but we talk about 2040 because I, I hate thinking we're all going to wait to 2050. It'll be a terrible hockey stick of all sectors if we were all going you know, crazy in the last decade. So I think 2040, lots of progress to be made. And at this point, um, I'd love to ta- ask you a little bit about your One Young World involvement, Philip, as well, because I also saw that you headed a, took a delegation from Audi to Manchester in 2022 to the One Young World uh, conference. And you were described, quote unquote, as fresh young minds from Audi. And it does look like a really exciting, forward thinking place to work. But it was a great experience for me and also for the other colleagues. I mean, we are always a bit stuck in our company, in our in our thinking and in our department thinking and our strategy thinking. And a event like uh, One Young World, it just opens our mind a bit, at least for this one week. And we me personally, I took a lot of those things back to our company. And also it influenced, for example, a bit of our circular economy strategy, I can tell you. <laughs> well, brilliant. It sounded wonderful. And it looked wonderful, too, from the pictures online. At this point, I'd like to see if you have any questions for each other. Philip, you've been listening to Adam. Is there anything you would like to ask him? 
Yeah, Adam, so you have yeah, nearly three decades of experience. That's as long as nearly I am old. So, And also we mentioned before the One Young World. So there are a lot of young circular economy and you choose that's out there like me. Do you have any recommendation for us or for me in this case? <laughs> Anything you've learned the last 30 years? Great question. And actually, most of my 30 years has not been circular. I think that's the thing. It's, it's kind of that's become a bit, bit new age. So you've probably got almost as much experience as I have, Philip. Um, I, th I think it, you've, you've, you've alluded to it already because a lot of your examples are, are connective. You know, connectivity for me um, is everything in a circular world because you don't know what you don't know until you walk into an, an environment where somebody goes, oh, have you thought about this? Or we're doing that. It always amazes me what somebody's doing in a far flung place and you go, Why didn't we think about that? And, and I think that's, that's got to be part and parcel of our journey is being open to ideas, um, not being locked into a system. I think the linear model of make, dispose, uh, you know, so make, use, dispose has, has probably locked us into sort of a, a, a silo way of thinking. And I think the more that we can look outside of our boxes and go, well, what do other sectors do? And, you know, how can we work with, with different people? I think is absolutely how we ensure that we, we, you know, we keep new ideas coming into our sectors and, and make them, you know, more efficient ultimately, which is good for everybody. Sounds great. And Adam, have you any questions for Philip? Yeah, well, I, I'm interested in, in not only Audi, but the rest of the automotive sector. What do you want from your partners? Because I'm looking at the world as a resource manager and I'm going, I bet this stuff we could do better for you. That's a very good question. So what we want from this kind of industry is like taking our hand and going with us to this journey. And in the last years, I've always experienced that this recycling industry is very open for this kind of journey. So... Uh, At least for your industry, I don't have big wishes, <laughs> but maybe I have some wishes for our suppliers. <laughs> If you could encourage our listeners to read one piece of research or one report to help them understand or take action on the circular economy, what would that be, Adam? I'm going to say, go and read a report that Suez commissioned last year called The Stuff of Life. And it was written with my mum in mind. So it's written for your average consumer. And it gives you a load of ideas about things you do, whether it's on holiday, when you're doing the shop, or just when you're lounging around at home, where you can make a huge amount of difference to your resource consumption just by doing something different in the moment. Oh, I will check that out. And Philip? If you are with or working with or in the automotive industry, if a so-called Act for Impact Audi playbook, we've just uploaded this, I think, half a year ago for our suppliers, but also for everybody, where we put in all our best practice examples of circular economy, decarbonization, human rights, and so on. So just Google Audi Act for Impact, and then you find the playbook, and then you get all our use cases. Oh, I think that's brilliant. Super advice there. And it's been so fabulous to, to talk to you both today. Um, I want to ask you a little bit personally now, a personal question to end the podcast today. Yes, you're responsible leaders, but what are you personally committed to doing more of or less of in the coming year? Philip? My personal commitment is to do my best to implement our ideas in the near future because I'm I'm strongly convinced that we don't need to have a new strategy, a new PowerPoint slide, but we need action. I think that's the way we need to go. And this is my personal commitment here that we try our best. Yes, indeed. Adam, same question to you. I'm going to take a really personal one. Um, over the course of the year and the next six months, um, I'm investigating a number of different um, electricity options for my house, including solar and, 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 um, and such like. But more importantly, I'll be switching 
my car to electric when my current lease ends. And that's that my lesson here is it's all about when the lease ends because the cost model doesn't work until the lease ends. So I couldn't go earlier because the lease. So um, bear that in mind, consumers, you know, look, look at the paperwork. And you might want to talk to Philip then. He'll um, direct you to the sales department there for Audi and you can pick I may have had a look at an Audi recently. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Of course, other brands are available. (laughs) Gentlemen, it has been fabulous to talk to you today. It has definitely been an education, not only on the circular economy, but you've broken it down, made it really accessible. And that's the key here on the Lens podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Adam Reid and indeed to Philip Eder. It's been a brilliant conversation. You have been listening to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. If your business would like help to investigate circular economy principles and practices and network with other like-minded organisations on environmental progress towards a just transition, then please do visit the website www.bitc.org.uk. As Adam said, You don't know what you don't know. It's all about that connectivity. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time.